It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome to the first episode of Beyond the Booth with Jesse Agler. We're kicking off this podcast with one of the newest members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the legendary Padres closer, Trevor Hoffman, sitting down to talk about everything from the Hall of Fame to hairstyles on the inaugural episode of Beyond the Booth with Jesse Agler. Well, those bells can only mean one thing. It is Trevor time. Welcome to Beyond the Booth. I'm Jesse Agler, and let's have some fun. There are, as you may very well know, and as I know, a lot of podcasts out in the universe. They're here, they're there, they're everywhere. Many of them, in fact, are about the Padres, and we're not trying to flood the space or do anything that's already being done, but we do feel like we can contribute and have a good time doing so. So very happy to do this, very excited about it, and uh, you know, we figured you might as well start things off with a bang, right? 601 career saves, a seven-time All-Star, and as of this summer, a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. If you're going to start a podcast about the Padres, who better to speak to than Trevor Hoffman? Trevor, first off, thanks. This is, um, this is going to be a lot of fun. We appreciate it. Let me ask you, when did it start to feel real, the Hall of Fame? Or has it? Um, not, not to the point where I can conceptualize what's going to happen. Um, I think when we got back to New York for the uh, initial press conference, um, being in, in New York and being next to the other inductees, um, speaking on behalf of myself in a sense of what, what it means going into the hall, that's kind of when it started sinking. You got a little bit of family around you. It was within the 24 hours of, of having that call come in. Uh, you start feeling a little bit different, but uh, you know reality sets in and the whole scope of things kind of calm down. And uh, you have quiet moments where you, you, you kind of – Shake your head. I, I shake my own hand. I go, I can't believe this has actually happened. And certainly so proud, but uh, something that is, uh, it's going to take a while for it to really sink in. Have you started on the speech yet? I haven't. A lot of people have asked <laughs> about that. I have some conceptual ideas on, um, you know, what I want to touch upon. Um, it's going to be awfully difficult to thank everyone. I thought Dick did an amazing job of just recognizing those that are important in his, were important in his life and uh, you know who you are type of uh, comment he made. I thought that was fabulous. That's odd, Dick, doing things amazing when it comes to that. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's something that will come together, I think, through through time. I know that, you know, end of July is going to sneak up on me. I don't want to be rushed. I'll have, I will have wanted to practice it. I don't want to read verbatim of what we'll have written down. But I'll, I'll need that just kind of as a comfort, you know, more of a security blanket. But looking forward to it. Do they give you guidance, the Hall of Fame? Do they say, hey, here's some things other people have done that have worked? Do they kind of help you out at they, the beginning? They offered the opportunity to listen to. I mean, you can go on YouTube and yeah. see some of the other uh, guys that have, have done their speeches. And, you know, for me, I think less is more. I, you get too long. Not, and not only the fact that you have six other guys that are going to go in that day and it's going to be hot. And, uh, <laughs> you have disgruntled Hall of Famers behind me that I've heard about. So, you know, I think in reality I want the message to be, you know, pretty powerful. But short and simple is probably going to be the key. All right. Trevor Hoffman sits down to watch his Hall of Fame or to, to write his Hall of Fame speech. Are you at a computer? Are you at a typewriter? Are you got a legal pad out? Are you scribbling on napkins? What's your uh, what's your what's your way to do it? So it's going to be a legal pad, I'm sure. I've already done on a, in my phone and notes. I have notes kind of 
I wake up in the middle of the night and go, that, that sounded pretty good. And I try and type it in and go back to bed. But, uh, yeah, I think, it'll, you know, it'll be kind of – I've never really prepared a speech to this magnitude. I've always kind of searched for how am I going to fill the amount of time. And now it's like I have so much material, how do I condense it down to what's going to be useful? Um, but it'll, it'll be like big bullet points and the mantra saying over the top and try and fill in the gaps and go from there. I think you'll do a beautiful job. I'm looking forward to it very much. At what point in your career did this all begin to enter your mind as, as a possibility, or do you have to totally block that out when you're playing? I think it's part of getting tripped up. It's, you know, it's a good point. Um, you know, you obviously knew I was doing some pretty good things in the game, but um, to think that one day you might get uh, the opportunity to be even put on a, a, a Hall of Fame ballot um, is kind of it's anti anti productive. We'll, we'll say. Um, you know, you're in the thick of the game. You're you know you. you scrunch the hat down you have to compete on a nightly basis you're worrying about game reports you're worrying about uh, scouting reports you're worrying about you know where you're at on any given day what hotel room am I in when you know what city am I in you know you don't think of the grand scheme of things so I think this is kind of you know the perfect end of the road type of situation take us through it and and I've had this conversation with you before but for maybe someone who hasn't heard it or, or just wants to hear it again your game day you're closing it's for the Padres it's 1998 whatever you're getting to the ballpark. What time? What's your routine leading up from uh, the moment your your day kind of begins all the way through uh, those bells ringing as you came through the outfield fence? Yeah, wake, waking up excited for another opportunity. Certainly being at home, we'll, we'll kind of go from being on the road, not being on the road, but being at home. Um, just waking up, being excited to be in San Diego. You know, it, uh, it's a beautiful place to live, and certainly an even better place to play where there's so much consistency. And you know, you kind of wake up having an idea who we're going to be playing against, and if it's the first game of the series what kind of series they might have had coming into us. Uh, we've seen them last night, and we're in the middle of the series. It's like, you know, start to put some of your visualization that you've already seen to, to work on some of the swings that you might have seen out of the middle part of their order and who was on their bench that they used and maybe, you know, how frequently those guys are getting an opportunity to get in there. And so you're just kind of conceptually putting together your day on what it might look like at 10 o'clock. But the time that I, you know, hang out for a little bit at the house and, and like to get to the, the yard a little bit early so that I can kind of get the body going. You know, it's it's a little bit of long-distance running to kind of flush some things out, um, light tubing, feel the arm, see how much, you know, work we're going to have to do on it with with Hutch in the, in the train room. Uh, if it's been a few days off, then it's probably going to feel pretty good. Uh, again, we, we kind of get a lot of things done before batting practice starts. Batting practice, I, I kind of wanted, you know, just kind of mosey around and, have a good time with my teammates. You know, most of my work will have been done with the run and the throwing, the tube work, the core exercise, um, any type of extra uh, work that we might need to do just to get ready for that sort of thing. And then just roll into batting practice, roll into the first part of the, the, the game, have a lot of fun, uh, keep things, the conversation light down in the bullpen, have some fun with the guys. Um, there's always something that used to would come up, whether it's a bad haircut, whether it's a bad look that someone's trying to pull off or someone went shopping and thought they looked good and they really don't. They were the target, and we had a lot of fun uh, for the first few innings down there. But then I retreat to the bull, uh, the clubhouse, um, clean my shoes, um, um, shine them up myself. Um, would take a hot shower after I'd worked with the training staff on some modalities like an ultrasound and whatnot, some soft tissue. Go through like a pregame, like a starter would do um, in the seventh inning. Always concerned about time. I mean, some innings will go super quick, some can go super long, but. You know, Hutch, we'd always play that dance. Like, we'd make sure we get our work done, but sometimes it would have to be really fast. Sometimes it could be a little more methodical. But it was a way of just not letting that drama build. 
And we finish up, and I go out to the pen and be ready to go for the ninth. Was there ever, and I'm sure there was at some point, you know, one of those days where you're back there and you think you've got a half an hour and it ends up being five minutes, and then, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm smiling at you as you <laughs> ask that question because instinctively when you think you got a nice run going sure. in, something will happen. Uh, and more often than not, it's when things go pretty quick that you kind of have to hurry up. And I think the worst thing I, that had really had happened, it wasn't in the preparation of getting ready. It was in the, the uniform. My zipper broke, and it was the eighth <laughs> inning. And we're like literally two outs away from I have to be in the bullpen, and I can't I'm, – I'm going my, – my fly's open. I can't go out of the field with my fly open. And so, you know, Spence and the guys, uh, Treeman, were kind of scrambling around to get an extra pair because the first pair I wore was for batting practice. That was all dirtied up. And – you know, we're particular about our stuff. So there was a lot of panic that went safety in uh, pin. that day. Safety pin. Safety pin. I feel like pin that could... would have been the last resort. <laughs> oh, that's unbelievable. Uh, all right, let's go back in time a little bit. We're talking Hall of Fame. We're talking Padres. What do you remember about your Major League debut? April 6, 1993, second game ever in Marlins history. They won opening day. Third game? Okay, my mistake. Uh, win on opening day against the Dodgers. You're out there in a big league uniform on the mound for the very first time. In awe, more than anything. Um, it's the first time I'd really been in the middle of a baseball field with a third deck with super bright lights. Um, but it was a wonderful day um, in, in South Florida, bright blue sky, puffy white clouds. And as we sit today, I actually played golf yesterday with Charlie Huff, who ah. threw um, the start of the game for us on opening day uh, down in South Florida. And we talked a little bit about uh, some of those memories. but I was uh, there, by the way. It was my 11th really? birthday, and I was there. <laughs> You're far cry from 11 now, yeah, man. Yeah, you look good. Me. You've grown up nicely. <laughs> you um, but we talked about the, the first at-bat that Charlie had against Jose Offerman, where it was a, a ball called a strike, a, a really bad ball called a strike, and then nowhere near the the, the, the batters or the home plate area called a strike, and uh, Frank Pulley rung up uh, Jose Offerman. But that, that first opportunity I had to pitch, I thought it was a third day, maybe it was second, but um, – I knew I was the last guy to come out of the bullpen. And so just kind of having to wait around stunk. But I knew sooner or later I was going to get my opportunity. And I didn't think it was going to be in the situation it was. It was bases loaded. It was top of the eighth. Two outs. Eric Davis at the plate. And Latch brought me in uh, to face him. Ended up getting to a 3-2 count. And I just kind of got really caught up in almost all the atmosphere. I had to step off, take a break. Lock back in, not kind of look at the crowd, not hear the energy, and and kind of execute a pitch. And I just threw a fastball that uh, seemed to have a little extra life on it, and got it, got it by him, got the strikeout, and couldn't have, couldn't tell you how much relief came from that. Uh, but was certainly very excited to have my major league debut go that way. I mean, that's storybook stuff, right? Major league debut, you come in with the bases loaded, two outs, pretty good hitter at the plate. Yeah. Eric Davis, and, and you strike him. And it was a guy that I knew from the Cincinnati Reds organization that right. I was a minor league guy. I mean, he had no business knowing who I was. And, you know, I think that's kind of how the game works at times is you never know who you're going to pass on the way up and never who know you who you're going to pass on the way down. And uh, it's kind of part of giving respect everywhere. And he was always kind to me when I did make it to Piggly Camp, even though I didn't get a pitch. But, uh, you know, he was an MVP in the World Series in yeah. 90. Uh, uh, awesome career, and to be able to have that moment for me um, was was pretty cool. Joe West had the plate, by the way, for that game. That's uh, unbelievable. Uh, I have another Joe. experience with Joe West. My first time into Wrigley Field, much uh, not much later in that season. Um, I'm out in the middle of Wrigley Field, and it's the seventh inning, and the th- whole crowd stands up, and I go, "What's going on?" I go, "Oh yeah, it's going to be that time." And Harry pulls out, you know, leans out of the, uh, the press box and starts going away with the uh, seventh inning stretch, and I'm I'm going, I have the best spot. <laughs> in this whole stadium watch this go down and Joe West was behind the plate 
had a few choice words on having me hurry up my uh, in-between <laughs> innings pitches. And I said, sorry, Mr. West, got him done, but it was a pretty cool experience. Oh, that's pretty funny. Like, hey, kid, <laughs> kid let's go. You don't on. get to stand and watch. Yeah, you still got to throw <laughs> the bottom of the seventh inning. Uh, first Major League save came at the end of April in 93. It was in Atlanta. Do you remember that being a big deal, or had you sort of gotten the debut out of the way? You had now pitched a couple of times. Was it big to get the save? I didn't. I didn't think much yeah. about saves at that. You know, Harv had to go take care of some some personal stuff. I just happened to be the guy that they called on in that particular situation. I didn't know saves was, uh, and being a closer was going to be that much of a part of my major league career. I was just trying to survive in, in the big leagues um, and get through um, a big league season with the Marlins. It uh, wasn't much longer after that that I'm coming out west to, to San Diego. So a lot of things change fast in the game. I think, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's obviously nice to have your first, but it was just try and get a clean inning and get out of it. 600 saves later, here we are having this conversation. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the trade. It comes in June. How did that feel? I mean, you, you've been picked up by the Marlins in the expansion draft, you know, from Cincinnati, as you said. Uh, you're traded. I, I've talked to a lot of athletes over the years and for a lot of guys, that's it's almost traumatic. Yep. You know, it's like they don't want me. Why don't they want me? And you can't necessarily see the big picture. How did you feel when you were traded to the Padres? Shocked. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a very good point you you make that you know everything had gone very smoothly up to that point. You know, was in the minor leagues. Excuse me, with the Reds, I'd gone from you know Charleston, West Virginia, to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Nashville, Tennessee, all in a year and comfortable, tidy little box. Never went back to a place twice other than Chattanooga for a month. I mean, couldn't have asked for a better script. Expansion draft to Florida. Awesome. Everything's going to be new. Everybody's going to be excited about being a Marlin. Get there. Everything's going comfortably. I make the club out of spring training. And then, bam, that day does happen. That trade happens, and your world just kind of gets flipped. And thankfully, I didn't have – I wasn't overly established in the game. I didn't have a family. We didn't have a home in South Florida. On a dime, I wasn't moving to the West Coast. Um, Cleaned up an apartment, packed up a few items, and – I was gone, but it was such a whirlwind, and it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want me. It was more that I was wanted by somebody else. Um, obviously, a much more exciting time in South Florida based off of where they're at and where the, the potter is ahead of the time, but um, a few choice words by Glenn. My older brother says it's going to be the best opportunity for you. You're going to get to go to an environment that's going to let you grow. You're going to be able to learn under uh, very fantastic people, and they're going to allow you to, to, to learn at the big league level. And you're going to be close to mom and dad. They're going to get a chance to have a chance to see you come down and and play in San Diego. So it's going to work out, and sure enough, it did. How much of what he told you and maybe who else told you allowed you to have that mentality, seeing it as an opportunity and not as sort of a negative thing? It calmed things down a lot. you know. And I never really looked at it as a negative. I kind of looked at it as, you know, I was wanted peace. Um, Went for a a marquee player in Gary Sheffield. I had felt pretty – pretty cool about that I mean you know it wasn't just a matter of moving players but a, a marquee player like that you're, you're you're involved in a trade and then it was kind of go out and prove your worth you know I, I know what the west coast was like I wasn't an east coast guy I wasn't you know middle of the country guy I, I you know growing up in Orange County this is an oasis down here you go 100 miles south it's like San Diego oh my gosh what an opportunity and so I never looked at it as a bad thing um and then only as an opportunity to grow with a group of guys that were being built together. And, you know, Randy had a vision and had obviously had a, um, something he had to follow out as far as cutting payroll and moving people. And I was thankful that he, uh, he saw fit and put me in that deal. And, of course, the way that the baseball universe works, you make your Padre debut against the team that drafted you, the Reds. <laughs> Unbelievable. They weren't very kind either. The Reds and the Cubbies beat the crap out of me that first series, and I kind of limped onto that, that airplane in the first series uh, to go back to Philadelphia, it can, which continued to get worse because I think I had the latest loss in National League history later on in that, that road trip. But uh, the interesting part is you, you don't really see the other side – 
when you're when you're a rookie or you're young in your career you just kind of you see heroes that you've been watching on television and you're like oh my gosh I can't believe I'm pitching against some of these guys and so some of that you have to get over and then you get back to the basics of you know what if I just execute my plan then baseball doesn't really change uh, I was fortunate to have a teammate that hadn't gone yet um, and when he did leave Bruce Hurst we got two great guys back in Andy Ashby and Brad Osmus but Hurstie had his family it was a family trip that was going off to Philadelphia and he kind of came back to the, where I was sitting and put his arm around me and he said, hey, man, you're going to have a long career in this game. Um, trust your stuff. He was a teammate of Glenn's back in Boston, so there was a little bit of a connection he, he had that he felt comfortable like giving me some encouragement, and that uh, really went a long way. I, I, it's amazing. You, you hear stories like that a lot. It can mean the world to a young guy to have somebody like that make a comment like that. Can't no it? doubt. He's an established yeah. big leaguer, yeah. a guy that had done um, – pitched in World Series and, and had done amazing things in this game. And to be humbled enough to come back and, and spend a little bit of time to know that it could have a, a big impact in moving forward, not only for our team, because he was a part of my team, we were teammates, but you know, a, a young kid's career, he could change. All right, you've talked a lot about a lot of different teammates. You always do that. You, you love to give credit elsewhere. And coming up soon, we're going to have that 1998 reunion here in San Diego. How much are you looking forward to getting that crew back together? Yeah, you know, we've had a thread going for a few years now. <laughs> and some of the banter that goes on back and forth, it, uh, it's going to be fun to be in, in person to be able to, to give it back and forth. But um, magical time, magical time for the city. Um, 20 years, I can't believe it's gone by that fast. Um, and guys have gotten older, but we're cherishing – uh, that team, um, we're certainly going to be missing a few important cogs, and Tony and 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 Cammy and you know the Colonel up in the booth and you know just just impactful people. KT obviously the matriarch, they're patriarch of the whole thing and putting it together. Um, big big pieces that won't be there, but we'll celebrate everybody. That's for sure. Yeah, it'll be May tenth. Uh, that four game series against St. Louis, the bobbleheads, um, and all the fun. A uh, totally different topic here. Did you meet the Pope last year? <laughs> you did change gears a yeah, little bit. Yeah, very right quickly. There, yeah. There's no we, smooth segue to meeting <laughs> the Pope, okay? I get. We did. Um, we had a chance to uh, travel to Europe for our first time, um, not having a, a bunch on the on, on our calendar. Um, we went with the Cotzes, um over to Rome. They surprised me uh, for my 50th birthday, and it was also uh, Tracy and I's wedding anniversary. And so Mike Sweeney, another teammate, friend, um, Big Catholic was able to set something up. We were able to go and see Mass on Wednesday at, in the in the Vatican City, and our seats were rather close. And so when the service was done, the um, Pope Francis was able to walk through and had a chance to uh, have an interaction. We had, we brought a couple Padre jerseys with us, <clears throat> one that he blessed, uh, and I gave to uh, the Cotze family, and the other we gave to uh, Pope Francis that had 266 on the back. So uh, pretty – Pretty magical moment to meet someone of such holiness and the um, way he's regarded in the world. Um, what an amazing figure, and uh, he could have been more gracious in just asking us to pray for him. Wow, very, very neat. I was going to ask you, kind of separate from that, who, who the neatest person you, you've heard from uh, since the Hall of Fame uh, announcement was made. So we'll, we'll put the Pope in his own category. <laughs> we'll kind of set him aside a little bit. I don't want anybody trying to compete with Pope Francis, uh, but I, I can only imagine who you did hear from uh, back in January when the announcement was made. Some of them, I'm sure, not surprises, but probably a couple of people you didn't expect to hear from. Yeah, really, the Rolodex is, is pretty full, um, and it's full from people that are, are world famous. There's people that you know are important to me because— I might have last time I talked to him might have been in Little League, um, and that's true. I went from a Billy McIntyre to a Garth Brooks. Billy McIntyre was a 11 year old kid that we played all stars together at Delco Field. 
that had a c- couple cool pictures that I had a chance to to reminisce with, and then a former teammate in Garth Brooks that was with the Padres in spring training reached out to congratulate. So it, he didn't uh, make the opening game roster though. Garth, no. <laughs> <laughs> he tried. He tried very hard. Uh, that was cool. All right, we got um, some fan questions that came in on Twitter. They're, they're all over the place as you can imagine. I want to get to those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that, um, I've I've had the the great fortune of being around you at a couple of different events in the last few years, and and. One of the questions that always seems to come up from families is is advice for young baseball players. And the way you answer that question, I think, is so important and so impactful. So I just want to use this platform to once again ask you, what would you say? You know, somebody's got a, a 9-year-old or a 10-year-old. They love baseball. They play baseball a lot of the time. They want to be a major leaguer. They want to be Trevor Hoffman. They wear number 51 in Little League. Um, what do you say to those kids and those parents just as importantly? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest message is to make sure we're not putting too much pressure on them. Um, you know, obviously they're going to dictate how much involvement they want to have, as they should, because it's it's their kind of path that they're taking. But it, our their dream can't become our dream as parents, and so you just kind of have to encourage them. You have to not too much put too much pressure. Understand it's just a game, and whatever value it is on that particular trophy that they might be going for, it's probably a value of five dollars. It's probably more to keep the family intact and not to not to grind on that too much. But uh, I think more than anything, it's you know we we talk a little bit about having fun. Well, you know. Sometimes kids equate having fun with the number of hits they can get or the number of strikeouts and, and zeros they can put up when they pitch. And ultimately, that's not necessarily being a great teammate. I think there are kids that aren't going to have that opportunity to do that, and how do they have fun? And so I think if they can kind of come together and obviously um, enjoy the moment, whether they get the hit or if someone else does, if they can um, enjoy that together and have chemistry and build some team camaraderie, I think the the excitement and being around the game and, and learning at that age level will be something that they'll take away from. Very nice. All right, questions coming in from Twitter for Trevor Hoffman. Trying to be as respectful of your time as possible. I, I could ask you another hour's worth of stuff, but we're keeping you busy around here. Uh, first one actually comes from our, our buddy from the, the Athletic, Eno Saris. He's obsessed with pitching grips and, and the way guys throw balls. He wants to know once and for all, was it a palm ball or, or is it a changeup? He wants to know about the grip. He, he, he calls palm ball on it. Yeah, you know, I almost have to acquiesce to his position on that one I I mean uh, to me a a change up is a little bit more of a a, a nail case sign where the ball is kind of maybe out on your fingertips and you're able to create less velocity almost drag with that part of your hand the ball was tucked in the back of my palm and so to ultimately call it a palm ball I I like change up better but maybe it was a a, a palm ball well we'll it's kind of I'm going to sit on the fence and say it's a changeup because that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, no, it's we'll call it a changeup because you call it a changeup. Uh, this is a very related question from Jordan. He wants to know what your favorite way to strike somebody out was. Uh, you know, the favorite – that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked, you know, the way you would want to do it. I think um, ultimately there are things that go into at-bats that can't happen until you actually throw a pitch. And so you can have all the data you want. You can have – your, your infield set up a certain way, and until pitch one is made, you're not really sure which direction that bat's going to go. Obviously, I'm trying to get ahead, and obviously he's trying to see more pitches and get into a hitter's count. But I think, obviously, a guy that didn't overly throw hard, it wasn't necessarily tricking him with a changeup. It was maybe cat and mouse and threw a, through pitch, a few pitches and then seeing something in the at-bat that they tip their hand that they're either looking in or away, and to be able to throw to the pitch on the other side of the plate with a, with a true fastball and freeze them, that was, that was a lot of fun. How did you walk that line between pitching to your strengths and working towards a guy's weaknesses? Um, I, I relied a little bit on my instincts. You know, Having been a hitter and 
in professional ball. I only did A ball, but I think some of those lessons that I was able to to remember what they were like standing in the batter's box allowed me to have that that insight when I was out on the mound. And so there is that delicate balance where, you know, information's true. There's tendencies that guys are going to go through, and you have to be aware of them. And, and, and when you're when you're a late-inning guy and you're only going to be in there at any time, there's only so much information you really are going to take. And my the one thing I really wanted to know is who was hot. And you can turn on any uh, you know, television station that follows the game, and you're going to get an idea pretty quickly who's doing well. That being said – you don't want to get beat with secondary stuff. You don't want to go after somebody thinking, okay, he might not be able to hit that because I don't think he's in a good position. Rather than I want to go with my stuff. And so um, I think that's where you get the balance of going against your strength just because you think it's his weakness. Very cool. All right, another poor segue here. Uh, Hunter's question. I'll read it verbatim. Dude, the hair, what's your secret? <laughs> and I'm looking at it, by the way, it's as good as ever, man. That's it's going, I appreciate that. It's Miss Tracy, my wife, has asked me to, to grow it out a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of growing it out because the gray kind of becomes a little bit more prominent. Um, <laughs> but I have this – I don't know if my mom just laid me on the crib as a young kid or made me stand up against a wall too long because I have this flat portion in the back of my head that literally would be seamless if you stuck me up against a wall. And so to grow the hair out, it'll kind of give it a little bit more – body will say okay so I think for me it's the dry wax that I use that allows it to kind of stay down but still stay groomed I appreciate the love on the hair <laughs> I like it short the wife likes it long so we're compromising that's uh, always a good idea uh Chrissy wants to know if Glenn has ever uh, defeated you in arm wrestling he was the big brother I imagine at some point you know what I, as any good big brother will do you get to a certain point where they know they're vulnerable and they're not going to do anything <laughs> Fair anymore enough. so that's not happened <laughs> Uh, cranky Ed, that, that's actually good Big Brother material right there. Um, he wants to know at what point you realized the changeup was going to be what it was for you. You know, I don't think there was um, any one particular pitch. I just knew that after I'd spoken with Donnie Elliott about how he held his, his changeup and what it morphed into pretty quick. Um, okay, so we back up. So Donnie's changeup in the neighborhood of nine, eight, nine, ten miles an hour difference. Good. And it worked because I threw a hard fastball. So going from 93, 94 miles an hour to have an 83-mile-an-hour changeup, that's going to have success. But then when it, again, within like a month, choke, putting it back in the back of my palm, using the changeup palm ball, we, we discussed <laughs> that. And then it, got, it went from like 10 to easy 15, 17-mile-an-hour difference. I'm going, I know what it was like to try and hit. If I can make this, both these pitches look identical out of my hand and let it do what it's going to do, that, that's going to be an advantage, and it's going to be hard to hit. So that's kind of about the time I knew I was going to have some success. Really neat. Uh, I probably should have asked this one with the hair, but Paul wants to know <laughs> if you think you are more handsome than Austin Hedges. I don't know why he had to choose Hedges. I mean, I have a sense, but I guess that's who he's uh, putting the, the benchmark on. I don't know. Him. He's tall, dark, and handsome. I'm just old, blonde, and gray. <laughs> You pick. I don't know about that, but I can't look. Uh, I can't wait now to talk. My to Austin demographics Hedges. like me. I don't know about the twenty-year-olds out there that like Austin Hedges. Um, Big Deegs, do you have a single most memorable save? Obviously, we talked about the first one that kind of blended in because who sure. knew that there were going to be six hundred more? Uh, I'm sure the last one was memorable, and obviously some of the round numbers. What was the, what were some of the big ones for you? Yeah, the last one was kind of interesting because I'd been taken out of the closers role in Milwaukee and would kind of limped into six hundred and. Got another last-minute opportunity because of the closer. Axford was down that day. So that's kind of where we finished at 6.01. But certainly within the realm of things, it was an accomplishment. But I think the two, the two saves for me that kind of stand out, and, and I've, I've been asked, like, any particular that uh, you liked more than the others. And 
they're all kind of amazing in their own right. Even the ones 250. I remember Damian Jackson diving into the uh, left field, left center gap, snagging a ball that ended the game in, in Texas, and I had no business getting an out uh, for, to get 250. But 478 and 479 here in the middle of a pennant race, day game, night game followed by day game, couldn't have been any more exciting. Um, the fans were going crazy. The town was on fire. It was obviously an individual accomplishment, but we were doing it in the team uh, aspects of thing. Those two were awesome. I don't think there's any question listening to everything you've said, uh, not just since the, the call came back in January, but the last few years when I've been here. Uh, you have a full and complete appreciation of how much all of this means, not only to your teammates, to the organization, but this community as a whole. That's why you are as beloved as you are. Congratulations again, and thank you for your time. Jesse, thank you very much. Appreciate being your first one, man. Thanks. <laughs> Once again, thank you to Trevor Hoffman. That was uh, really a lot of fun for me, and I hope it was fun for everybody out there listening as well. We're going to do this uh, pretty regularly over the course of the baseball season this year. A lot of neat guests coming up uh, from different places, not only in the Padre universe, but the baseball universe as well. So keep checking back, subscribe, all that good stuff, and uh, follow along on social media. Also, if you haven't seen, we are giving away a signed Trevor Hoffman uh, Padres yearbook cover proof. Uh, He signed it as we recorded the podcast here today. Uh, So make sure to check Padres social media for how you have the opportunity to win that thing. Our producer is Brendan Nieto. Our technical engineer is Becky. And audio mixing for Beyond the Booth is done by Mackie Sasser. Hope everybody enjoyed. We'll talk to you next time on Beyond the Booth.